Georgie? The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to Direct to Nowhere, the section of the Road to Nowhere podcast in which we invite a guest on to discuss one of their favourite directors and three movies from that director. Tonight I'm delighted to be joined on the pod by journalist and host of the award-winning Empire podcast, Chris Hewitt. Hi Chris. Hello. How's Good, things? not too bad yourself? Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks very much for coming on. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm... It's taken a while. Yeah, yeah. It is, but worth the wait, of course. <laughs> well, <laughs> wait. <laughs> Wait a little bit longer and then tell me in about what, an hour or so yeah. whether it's worth the wait. Spoiler alert, it isn't. <laughs> um, so obviously, as I said, you're host of the Empire podcast, Journalist for Empire. Um, is it 12 years this year the Empire podcast we've been for? 11 or 12 years? Yeah, we've, well, we've just done, God, 11 years. We just, uh, yeah, we just celebrated uh, 11 years. We're in episode 556 or 7. Mm-hmm about to come up so yeah it's been it's been a roller coaster ride but as in we've been we're still going up very 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 slowly (laughs) 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 waiting for the drop-off waiting for the drop-off but yeah it's it's been uh it's been it's been a hell of a thing it really has yeah i was quite late to podcast but one of the first ones i did here was yourself because just love movies so it's quite a handy one to have um yeah i'm also listen to us as a way of not how not to do it that's that's (laughs) take pointers anti-pointers from us yeah the um actually caught one of your shows as well in glasgow uh with michael palin that's right that's one of my favorite live shows we've ever done that was yeah. great that was fantastic yeah. big sold out uh auditorium they weren't there for us to be there for michael palin but i'll take it and uh he was terrific you know as you might imagine he's michael palin mm. he was great and I managed to you know, we we did a little we did a little bit a little little comedy bit in the middle of the interview which was really nice uh, which was lovely I kind of I improv with Michael Michael Palin for thirty seconds it was glorious I'll take that to my grave not many people can say that so that's a, no that's one you've got but the, um, <laughs> it wasn't bad uh, you've also got the the spoiler special section which I've signed up for as well and that's really great like kind of instant movie reactions and. All sorts through that interviews with directors as well added on to the yeah pod and it's it's excellent stuff yeah absolutely yeah behind the paywall the dreaded paywall but uh, you know it it keeps the lights on keeps the uh, keeps the podcast going so so that's great and uh, yeah some of the some of my uh, it's a horrible word isn't it, content but some of my favorite episodes are are behind that paywall you know the six hour Chris Macquarie interviews and whatnot uh, are all behind that wall you know loads of marvel spoiler specials back when people liked marvel um so yeah there's loads of great there's loads of stuff there's loads of stuff there for people and you've obviously you've done as i said live shows you've got the the spoiler content obviously your first job with empire was obviously i assume it would have been starting out as a journalist in empire yeah 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 absolutely i was a junior writer in empire for for about six months i can't remember i can't remember exactly when i uh i moved up but i've i've held a number of titles at the magazine over the years i've been there far too long uh according to many people and 
uh, it's it was yeah it's been it's been absolutely fantastic and then um started kind of you know exploring different avenues video stuff and uh and then the podcast and the podcast has really taken off and the podcast is pretty much now my you know my main thing on the magazine i still write a lot obviously i still edit a section but the the podcast is is a day job within the day job it's it's yeah it's taken on a life of its own yeah and as i said that's obviously because of the longevity you've had the the time and effort you can tell that you all put into it it kind of comes through when you're listening i think anyway for me personally anyway. Well, no, thank you, thank you. No, it means a lot, and uh, no, the the time certainly, yeah, because we we do a, we're we're a long podcast, mm. the Empire podcast. Uh, yeah, sometimes we'll go over two hours. And sport specials, I'm just about to put one up uh, after we finish this. I've just got to fine tune uh, a little bit of you know, a few bits and pieces for Ant Man and the Wasp, Quantumania sport special, and that's clocking in at almost three hours. Uh, so. You know, the thing is, if you sign up for the spoiler specials, you get your money's worth. That is, that is for darn sure. Darn sure? That's for darn sure. And you get me mangling the English language as well. You get that for free here for darn sure. <laughs> uh, and as you said, it's uh, I think two ninety nine a month is the one that I've signed up for anyway. And that's if you're London based, that's what half a coffee. <laughs> like I was down in London last year for uh, Barbarian press screening, right? And I made the mistake of going to a pub and getting a pint. And it was about just outside. Just in fact, it was a Weatherspoons in Leicester Square, so I assumed it would be cheap because it was a Weatherspoons, and it was about seven fifty or something. Was it the Moon under under the water? Is that a Weatherspoons in Leicester Square? I think so. Yeah, that yeah. Right I think yeah. I know. I know. I know the place. I used to go there with my friends when I first moved to London. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 expensive. It's expensive. So you can either choose to be you know to have like a a watery cup of coffee or a, a cheap. Quarter of a pint uh, for two ninety nine a month, or you can choose to be entertained for hours and hours and hours by a bunch of idiots who don't really know anything about film but pretend to. So oh, you, you know more than the masses and the people that are paying for it. That's the main thing. One step ahead of them. Ah, uh, two steps behind <laughs> everyone else. But you know, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, you mentioned it actually. Uh, uh, something I was wanting to ask you about the Marvel universe thing. Obviously, over the years, Empire have been. Big advocates for it. If this uh, the first day when he says he's got paid by Marvel, obviously he's going, <laughs> but we can nip that in the bud. It's I'm also a big Marvel fan. I have, I mean, I've got a Deadpool t-shirt on, and I've got tattoos of stuff in my legs and that. I definitely I'm feeling a wee bit of I don't know if it's comic book fatigue or if it's the quality is going downhill. I quite enjoyed Quantumania. I didn't like the hate that it got. No, I didn't feel it was yeah. fair, but. I definitely feel like, I suppose if you're falling on from Endgame, it must be an incredible difficult thing to do. I mean, there's there's a, there's a slight uh, after the Lord Mayor show feeling a, a little bit to some of the stuff that's happening in the MCU at the moment. But I also think there is a bit of a pile-on happening that for 20-odd films, they were pretty much bulletproof. And, you know, I, I, I think the run of quality uh, that those blockbusters that, that that studio produced between... Iron Man and Spider-Man Far From Home is unparalleled in blockbuster cinema. It's yeah. it was inc- the consistency of of the output was incredible given that there were three movies a year at one point and uh, in my opinion apart from maybe The Incredible Hulk they they didn't make a two-star film uh until Phase 4 um and you know there's been a few wobbles 
creatively speaking, I would say, but they're also taking a lot of risks. Also, yeah. they're still, they're still, it's not just the old cookie cutter uh, superhero uh, stuff that you've come to expect, you know, uh, and I still don't think there's anything as bad as, as Venom. And I think it's really fascinating when you look at the, uh, the different reactions to the movies that have come out in phase four and five. I really liked Quantumania, but there, there are people who absolutely loathe it. I really liked Thor Love and Thunder, but there are people who think it's the worst Marvel movie in the MCU. Uh, I wasn't that hot on Multiverse of Madness and Black Panther Wakanda Forever, uh, but there are people who would go to town for those movies. So it's different strokes for different folks. But what I think is happening is that there is definitely a, a drop off in terms of the critical reaction and critical reception and commercial uh, reception as well in that none of those movies have got close to the, the crowning glories of the franchise. And it feels to me now that they're playing to the the hardcore fans and they're not really breaking through to the to the other the other lot. Uh to the to the people who are you know, to the the casual fans. They're not really breaking through to those casual fans. Um, you know, for me, I think that the the quality can still be really, really high. The TV shows have been fantastic by and large. And uh you know, but the films themselves, you know, there's been there's been a few wobbles. But I'm still confident. I'm still hopeful. Yeah. That you know the likes of Guardians Three and the Marvels and everything else we're getting next year will will steady the ship um, and lead us into the next two Avengers movies. So I'm still hopeful. I'm still I'm still I'm still very much on board the Marvel train. Yeah, I I'm, I will 100 percent be going um, for the foreseeable future. Anyway, as I said, I was in there the screen in the first weekend of Iron Man when it came out. So yeah, I've been on that kind of journey, and it's never going to really drop away but I was just wondering your kind of thoughts on it it kind of it feels like it maybe started a wee bit with the Eternals the proper negativity even though I like the Eternals like I think yeah. it again gets there's certain aspects mainly I'm not a fan of Kit Harrington I don't think he can act but, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, which is my issue with it but he's barely in it thankfully you know, which, yeah. is, which is good for you <laughs> yeah, I, think he's, okay. I think he's fine but yeah. yeah and there was certain aspects of it maybe you could question but People were asking for something that was different for Marvel. The Eternals gave them that bit different, and then kind of it got shit on really quite quickly and quite. And I think it's still the, the lowest rated, isn't it? I think it might be the lowest rated, and it might have taken less money than everything else. Although I think obviously the pandemic factored into that, mm. but I don't think we can really use the pandemic as an excuse anymore for for box office uh, because you have obviously Avatar doing what it's done, Top Gun, Maverick doing what it's done. You have. Creed three, kicking ass and taking names at the box office. Uh, so, you know the likes of Quantumania. Quantumania is going to make less money than both the previous two Ant Man movies, and there's absolutely no doubt that that was not on the agenda. That wasn't part of the plan. Uh, and so there might be a sense of crisis. You know, this week saw the departure from Marvel of Victoria Alonso, who was one of the sort of three pillars of Marvel, along with uh, Kevin Feige and Luis Despacito. Um, and that's interesting. That feels like a bit of a seismic shift, perhaps. Um, yeah, uh, it could be a lot of speculation about that and, and when, what exactly went on there. Uh, what you know? Are they, you know, are they having crisis talks? Are they trying to recalibrate? Are they trying to mitigate against the, you know against the whatever factors have led to a dip in quality? Because I think there has been a dip in quality by and large. You know, I've still enjoyed a lot of the the output in phases four and five. I really, really liked Eternals. I, I loved Shang-Chi. I loved uh, No Way Home. I really liked Thor Love and Thunder. 
but you know there there have been movies that just haven't quite connected with me um you know i was thinking about this today because i think about marvel a lot and i was thinking about you know the 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 proof of the pudding is is rewatchability and there are very very few movies from up until far from home that if i'm flicking through sky although less less so at least days because everything's on disney plus and not really on sky or tv but if you're flicking through tv and you happen upon the winter soldier then you're watching the winter soldier till the end if you happen upon doctor strange you're watching doctor strange till the end if you happen upon black panther you're watching it till the end ant-man the same and i think that that is less and less the case with the phase four movies if i'm if i flick upon if i happen upon multiverse of madness or wakanda forever i may not stick with them to the end uh so that's perhaps the biggest example that the, the, maybe there's a bit of a, a a wavering you know a wavering in terms of the quality um but you know i liken it a little bit to you know football managers yeah who win the big prize and you know I'm a Liverpool fan, as people may know if they listen to the podcast. I'll mention it every five seconds. You know, I'm a Liverpool fan, and there's a an argument to be made that after Liverpool won the league a couple of years ago, that that was a moment for Jurgen Klopp to go drop the mic and move on and go, I can't possibly top what we have just done, so I'm going to move on, let someone else have a go. Thank you very much. And there's an argument to be made, and I'm sure Kevin Feige made this argument. You know, he was having this debate with himself and probably with his family and everyone else around him. You know, I've just made at the time the biggest movie of all time mm-hmm. from fairly modest beginnings, which people seem to forget yeah. about the MCU. Uh, that it wasn't the big eight hundred pound gorilla in the room in two thousand and eight. That was the Dark Knight. It was the it was the underdog, very much so. And he built that that company, that Marvel Studios. You know, along with obviously other people as well. But he's the figurehead of it all. Mm. He's the driving force behind it all, and he built it up into the biggest show not just in town, but in the history of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And there's an argument to be made that after Far From Home and after Endgame, that that might have been the time for him to go, I'm going to pass on because I can't possibly top this. Yeah. Um, but he hasn't because he feels that he can top it or he feels he can certainly match it. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I think he also was excited by the prospect of playing with things like the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and bringing them into this world and, and integrating them. And uh, yeah, we shall see what happens. I don't know how I've done this, Andy, but I've I've managed to talk about Marvel in a podcast that's not about Marvel it's, for at least ten minutes. This is my gift. This is my curse. It's something I uh, I'm happy to listen to as well. Like it's always <laughs> the the first things I go to, as I said, cinema wise, and it's just what you're talking there. I've, I mean, I've got Wakanda forever. It's uh, I I kind of felt a bit. I enjoyed that more than Thor, but as you're saying, it is a personal choice for everyone. Yeah, um, you wouldn't bet against Marvel. Put it that way. I think if you had a tenner to put on, you would not bet against it. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think Guardians Three is going to be great. But then I thought Wakanda Forever was going to be a slam dunk home run. And yeah. can you do a slam dunk home run? You can now. We're, I'm, 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 I'm British. I don't know what American the sports. Old, the, um, what's it yeah. called? The Trey Parker and Matt Stone movie. Base, the, basketball. Basketball. Yeah, sure, yeah. That probably is slam dunk home runs. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. They had a slam dunk home run, four runs, four runs to everybody, uh, three points for down, and uh, yeah, I'm hopeful that Guardians Three will will succeed where Wakanda Forever didn't for me. Um, and then obviously the Marvels is is looking good as well. So yeah, fingers crossed. Yep. So we've had one Marvel chat now, so we can put that to the out side. the way, out the way. 
Um, if I'll you mention need- it again beforehand. Yeah, this is me. I, I cannot mention it. That's totally fine. If it comes up in natural conversation while we're discussing three movies from the 1980s, that's totally fine. Totally <laughs> Even fine. if it doesn't, I'll crowbar it in. Exactly. Um, so, a couple of wee questions just to I say start off, but start off this part of the pod. Um, do you have a kind of early... Or you, what is your earliest movie memory? It doesn't necessarily have to be a cinema, but something you remember from kind of your youth that has stuck with you. For me, it was like um, Terminator Two used to always be on BBC Two, so I would <laughs> up to my, it was always constant. I would go up to my granddad's because my mum and dad wouldn't let me watch it, and I would go up to their loft and watch Terminator Two and cry at the thumb, as a, and I still <laughs> cry at the thumb. But, um, just something like that, if you have anything. Uh, yeah, I think it's tricky because uh, everything blends into one when you're as old as I am. <laughs> so there are specific movie memories that I have, but I'm not quite sure which one came first. But I remember things like, for example, watching E.T. Uh, in <laughs> in the assembly hall of school just after it came out. Now, and the same thing as well with Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. And what happened was uh, I went to a very, very small primary school in Northern Ireland. And our headmaster was a lovely guy who's since passed. His name was Jim Sloan. Lovely, lovely guy. And he, on these two occasions, so this must have been around 82, 83, 84. God, I'm really dating myself here, but you know, in, in the middle of the 80s. And he would he got he got the little TV, the little crappy portable TV, and put it in the assembly hall, got all the kids in the school, very, very small school, so not not that many kids, and got them around to watch ET, uh, which was, you know, the you know, the biggest film of all time at that point. It was, mm. you know, setting all kinds of records and making all kinds of headlines. Now the thing that the thing that's interesting about that for me is that that and I can't be sure about this. But I'm almost certain that that was a pirate copy of VT. <laughs> that because I don't think it was released at that point in home video back then. So where the hell he got one, and why he figured it was it was right to show to a bunch of kids, uh, I have no idea. But I'm I'm glad he did. So that's that's definitely one big movie memory. Another one is is watching stuff like Superman three and Return of the Jedi in the cinema for the first time. In my local cinema, again, this is really, really horribly aging me. But uh, uh, yeah, I watched. Uh, it would have been Superman. Th- well, I'm not sure which one came came out first, actually. But in my mind, they came out roughly within about a week or two weeks of each other. And my my home cinema was a a single screen cinema, like one of those old classic Art Deco cinemas that it was called the Ivey Cinema. It was in Banbridge, Northern Ireland, which is my hometown. And uh, the sort of place where they only showed one film uh, once a day and there was queues around the block. Yeah. And I remember uh, going to see Superman 3 and Return of the Jedi. And uh, we were on holiday. My parents and I were on holiday. And despite the fact that we were on holiday from Banbridge, we got into the car and drove back to Banbridge <laughs> to watch these films. Okay. And I remember being terrified by the robot lady and Superman 3, you know, when Annie Ross gets turned into some sort of evil cyborg at the end. Uh, I remember loving Return of the Jedi. I think I saw Return of the Jedi before I saw Star Wars. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Um, and then there was another very formative experience for for me, which I've talked about 
at, on the Empire podcast at length a, a couple of times, but it would have been 84, maybe 85 by the time this movie opened because Northern Ireland, we got the films much later than everyone else. Mm. Um, as a, as a kind of, <laughs> that, was, that was maybe one of the last weapons they had against the IRA. They would deprive them of films. They go, right, you're going to blow up the mainland. Ha ha, you're not going to get to see Police Academy for another year. Ha ha, take that. <laughs> I'll teach you. And uh, so we, they showed Police Academy at the local cinema. And my friend and I, uh, Gary, my best friend and I, Gary, really, 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 really wanted to see Police Academy because mm. we'd heard such great things about it. And my mum took us to see Police Academy, not realizing that it was a 15 rated movie, <laughs> but because she knew the owner of the cinema, the owner of the cinema went, ah, it's all right. Come on in, bring your boys in. It's fine. Totally fine. Uh, and we watched, we watched this movie that had nudity, <laughs> um, you know, rampant homophobia now, <laughs> which yeah. you can see with, you know, back then, you had no idea. Uh, it had nudity, it had sex scenes, it had violence, it had all sorts of stuff going on in it. Uh, it had a blowjob scene that I remember asking my mum afterwards, what was that lady doing to that man? And my mum didn't tell me. No. Um, yeah. Rightly so, rightly <laughs> so as well. Uh, so those are those are some of the, the formative experiences of my life, mm. cinematically speaking. Yeah, some crackers. I don't ever remember getting a TV in school for movies. The only thing I remember was um, watching Ronaldinho lob David Seaman because the <laughs> South Korean World Cup was on before school started and that was that started my day really well. Um, I just got <laughs> off to a great day then. and Flow through three o'clock couldn't come quick <laughs> enough. I could go back and watch the highlights. Um, but yeah, uh, those are some great ones as well. You're saying about Police Academy. I think it was a movie I'll probably seen a bit too young as well when it yeah, um, totally not understanding it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I still I still don't understand it. The new one to the Police Academy escaped me <laughs> to this day, uh, but it was for a long time the movie I'd seen more than anything else. Mm-hmm. When I when I was a kid, I just watched because we, we then we might, we taped it off the TV. Yeah, when it came back on TV, and I just watched that thing, and I watched that, and I watched it, and there, you know there were times I could just I could have performed the whole of Police Academy for you, but now it's it's faded. Thankfully, it's faded <laughs> into memory. It's similar with my, my Terminator 2 experience, and I actually just got to see Terminator 2. I say just, it's probably five years ago now for the 25th anniversary. It was the first time I saw it in a cinema. Oh. Um, and I was disappointed because I love the director's cut, and it was just the, the theatrical. Um, ah. But it was still good, and it was sold out. It was fantastic. Um, so another thing which might end up bringing Marvel up again, I don't know. <laughs> Do you have... A kind of go-to cinema moment um, for me, for me, and I'm being genuine about this. If I'm sitting, maybe even if I've been out for a couple of drinks, I come back. I'll put portals on genuinely, and I'm not yeah. just uh, kind of bumming up Marvel or the <laughs> <laughs> the um, two scenes from the Dark Knight Rises, either the opening or the fight in the sewers. All oh, right, put on because I really love them. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to say if I think the dark knight rises is a better movie than the dark knight but i prefer it um it's it. i don't know why it's just something that do you I, even like the bit i mean i you know i've got a lot of time for the dark knight rises but uh do you like the bit where every single policeman in gotham goes under underground at the same time it was a good plan <laughs> <laughs> 
I love that. Like Chris Nolan is a genius, and like he has his characters do the most stupid things in that movie. It's, it's yeah. glorious. Batman before going to save Gotham goes and puts petrol up on the bridge so he can make a wee bat signal with fire. Why not? Honestly. He's extra. I think the kids say that nowadays, don't they? He's extra. Uh, he is extra. He is extra. He gets over his uh, back problem. Oh. I mean, he has a broken back and I don't know, a little <laughs> bit of willpower. It's like if you're, uh, yeah, I've got a bad back. So all I need is a bit of willpower and Tom Conti and that's, and I'm, and I'm good. <laughs> apparently. Okay. But yeah, it, it's definitely not a better movie than that night, but it's just, I think it no. was, I think what it was, it was the, the, um, the hype for it probably just stuck with me as well. But um, yeah. so, yeah, something like that, as I said, like I'll always stick portals on and things like that. Yeah. I mean, portals, it's hard to look past portals, uh, mm. to be honest. Uh, <laughs> banging the drum for Marvel <laughs> once again. It's like they're the underdogs. I need to mention them in case people forget what the MCU is. Can you get those Quantumania numbers up? <laughs> Precisely. I've got to see it again after this to try and give it an extra 10 quid in the coffers. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it, Portals is is a huge one for me, but Portals is a, is a bit weird for me because I uh, <laughs> this is a shocking name drop, but I saw I saw Avengers Endgame at the world premiere in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and I had my spoiler special interview hat on because I was meant to be interviewing the the writers Marcus McFeely and the Russo brothers the very next day. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying not to get too caught up in it or too or too fanboyish. Mm-hmm. So and I was trying to remember shit. You know, I was trying to go, okay, so that happens. Okay, I'm gonna ask about that because I'm gonna get a chance to see this once. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna see it again before I, I talk to them. So I need to nail the key moments. So when Portals happened, I was levitating, there was an out-of-body experience and the the reaction in the room was just absolutely orgasmic, mm-hmm. as you might expect. Yeah. But at the same time, there was a little part of me that was a little bit detached from it all. Yeah. Trying to remember this. Yeah. You know, almost like you're grabbing yourself going, remember this, remember this. Mm. So I wasn't lost in the film the way I was when I saw, for example, Spider-Man No Way Home, which is the only phase four, phase five movie in the MCU that is in my Marvel top 10. Mm. Um, and the last, you know, it's the, well, pretty much the last half hour of that film. But, you know, the the appearances of Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield in that movie, mm. you know, will live with me for a long time. My reaction to that was unhinged, uh, quite frankly, uh, which was, which was wild, but I, I, I want to steer away from Marvel a little bit, um, and go back, uh, a little bit more to, uh, the dark Knight. So the dark Knight, when I saw, I saw it in the States cause I was living in the States whenever the dark Knight came out. And the moment when the pod appears, and um, when he just bursts out of the the, the stricken Batmobile yeah. on the on the bat pod, that was incredible. But it's a bit for me that when he goes up the wall on the bat pod and flips it around, yeah, and then just rides off again, that was a moment where the audience just absolutely lost it, and that was incredible. And American audiences are so much more into you know audience interaction and just yelling at the screen and cheering than British audiences are, yeah, and. You know, the first time I ever experienced that was when I went to see The Fugitive in Toronto in 1993, when it, when it came out opening weekend and the train crash sequence. Yeah. You know, I went with my friend Gary, the the Gary of the the previous uh, Police Academy story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were on holiday in in um, in Canada, in between GCSE results, uh, wait, waiting for GCSE results, and we went on holiday and. Uh, went to see The Fugitive, and I, I had no idea that the audience could talk back. I had no idea. Yeah. 
None whatsoever. Apart from when I was a kid and I was uh, like six or six or seven or something. Like that, I saw Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom and the bit where he, you know, dives underneath the stone door as it as it as it closes and he reaches back in to, to grab his hat. Mm. And I shouted out in this packed cinema, go on, Indy. <laughs> and everyone laughed and pissed themselves. And so I didn't speak in a cinema for for ages. I was just mortified after that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the moment in The Fugitive when Harrison Ford you know, the, the train crash happens. He jumps out the way of the train, uh, the, the crashing train that got an audience. Like they were on their feet cheering. I was like, you could do this. Yeah. You could, this is incredible. So yeah, that, that uncorked me. Yeah. That was, that was amazing. I've seen a couple of movies in the States. One time I went to one in Seattle was uh, days of future past. Oh yeah. And there wasn't really much in the ways of that. The other time was I was in LA and I saw, uh, God, Terminator salvation. <laughs> um, that was mostly just booze. <laughs> uh, I think would that have been would the the premiere have been at the Chinese theater for uh, probably yeah, yeah probably that was where I saw the because I think it acts as a normal cinema during the day uh, during normal times that's a thing um, and I saw the yeah I saw Terminator Salvation there um, it's, <laughs> it was what it was let's rather not talk about that the audience applauding as you as if, as the film ended <laughs> thank Christ. Aye. Oh fuck! There's a sequel. No, I don't need to worry about that. It's <laughs> over. Yeah, um, but no, not not much audience interaction. But although I have seen like videos on YouTube of it, and them all going completely batshit. Um, especially again, portals. Um, so <laughs> moving on from part two of the Marvel chat, um, yeah. you're. Pick for director, which is the reason you're here not to talk about. Yeah, it's uh, Joe um, and Anthony Russo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, is one of the all-time greats in horror, if not the all-time great, it's John Carpenter. Yeah. Um, what is your relationship with him? So has it always been a, a love relationship? Are you kind of mixed on him? Was it something that came later in life? Is it, no. How has it been? No, it's, it's love at first sight uh, w- with some late career disappointment, but that, that happens with a lot of directors. Yeah. And I just ignore those films, yeah. um, as, as I think he does as well. <laughs> uh, love at first sight. I, I was racking my brains today trying to think about when I first saw a John Carpenter film. And I can't remember, honestly, but you know, as you can tell from my mum bringing me to see Police Academy when I was seven years old, uh, my parents were quite laissez-faire in terms of what they allowed me to watch. They just didn't give a shit, quite frankly. And that allowed me to watch pretty much anything and everything. Uh, so I was a big horror guy from, from, you know, from, from when I was knee high to a leather face, I was very, I was very much into horror. <laughs> so that kind of led me to Carpenter. Um, although I didn't come to Halloween until much later, weirdly enough, I think I, I, I can't even remember this, I, but I, I've got a sneaking suspicion. I saw Halloween three before I saw Halloween. I've just got, you know, it was, you know, you just, you, when you were that age, you would just rent what was ever in the video store and yeah, you would just kind of take weird routes to stuff. Nowadays, you'd be much more organized. Everything's available pretty much to, to stream. Well, that's actually not true. <laughs> that's not even remotely true, but there's a yeah. lot of stuff that's available. I, I know this because I did a Halloween um, rewatch recently uh, for uh, another podcast we occasionally do called The Ranking. It's a magazine thing where we take a filmography and we, or, you know, director's filmography or a franchise and we, and we rank them. And so I try to rewatch every single Halloween movie and it's really difficult because they're scattered to the four winds. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some of them, you know, you'll find David Gordon Green's trilogy. That's fairly easy to access as on sky. Then you'll get, 
Halloween's four, five, and six were on Lionsgate Plus, so I had to subscribe to Lionsgate Plus, and there were other ones scattered all over the place. So, anyway, you know, it's a bit it's a bit trickier these days to uh, to figure out your 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 viewing. It's a bit trickier than you might think, anyway. Yeah. But back in the day, I was all over the place as I am now, and I don't know. I, I honestly can't remember which one was first for me, but I have very very strong memories of seeing Assault and Precinct Thirteen mm-hmm. on Movie Drum. When Alex Cox was hosting Movie Drum, mm-hmm. and just being absolutely drawn in by it, you know the, you know, the it's one of my favorite John Carpenter movies to this day. I think it's absolutely terrific. I nearly picked it as one of my three movies here, uh, but and it's interesting, of course, because it's not a horror film. Mm-hmm. But I also remember The Fog, which is one of my choices, mm-hmm. scaring the living shit out of my mum, and it <laughs> wasn't, it wasn't the. The, the zombie leprous sailors who scared her. It wasn't any of that stuff. It wasn't the, the, the gore or the visceral kills in that movie. It was the music. It was John Carpenter's music that scared the, the living crap out of my mom. Yeah. And, uh, and that kind of, I think, in that weird contrary way that kids have, I think that turned me on a little bit more to, to Carpenter and to finding out more stuff that Carpenter had done. Mm-hmm. So then from there, you go into Christine, which is another one of my favorite John Carpenter films and came very, very close to being in my, in my top three here. Uh, you know, and you're going into, you're going into obviously the thing you're going into Halloween, you're going into escape from New York. I mean, his run, I think between, and you can throw dark star into this as well, but his run between dark star and if you're being generous, going up to Prince of darkness, in when was Prince of Darkness eighty seven eighty eight, yeah, is as strong a run, a directorial run as I think anyone in the history of movies, mm-hmm. and it's not all horror. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. There's an Elvis biopic for fuck's sake. There's there's a you know there is sci fi. There's a romance. There's everything but comedy. And of course, as Carpenter said many many times, there's pretty much all all of his movies are remakes to some extent of Rio Bravo. Um, and uh, which actually does fit into the fog a little bit, but he's got this incredible breadth to his filmography. He's an incredibly confident director. Uh, for me, he is absolutely one of the greats. He's not my favorite director. As you know, we were having the discussion about who I was going to choose initially. I went for Sam Raimi, mm-hmm. who is my beloved possessed goat boy. <laughs> um, but uh, damn you, Jed Shepard. You had you had taken you had taken Sam. I saw him first, but it's all good. It's all good. Uh, but John Carpenter, yeah, he's he's also. Can you have two goats? Yeah, yeah, of course, definitely. Fuck it, yeah, he's a goat. John Carpenter's goat. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, Jed picked strange movies for that. I think Crime Wave. I think was one. I mean, Which, that's deranged. That's uh, that's uh, utterly deranged. <laughs> it was a strange. It's the first time I'd seen it. It was a weird it's movie. Terrible. I mean, I love, I love Sam Raimi. I love him, but no, no. What else did he pick? Did he pick for Love of the Game? Was he just like trolling people? <laughs> he picked. Uh, so he picked Crime Wave. He picked um, Drag Me to Hell. Good and, choice. Yeah, and I cannot remember. It wasn't that man? Was it Evil Dead Two? Did he go Evil Dead Two? Didn't go any Evil Dead. See, that's a, that's a bold that's a bold move. Not yeah. picking the greatest movie of all time. Evil Dead too, but so you, we what can you do? We'll touch there a wee bit. And Sam, are you excited for Evil Dead Rise? I've seen Evil Dead Rise. Oh, I got invited to a screening, and it's down in London, and I'm not doing. That. I done that once, as I said, for Barbarian down on the Monday night, 
into Leicester Square and then back in the Tuesday night on a bus. So I went off, it was fine, but I got an invite <laughs> to the, the Evil Dead Rise. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I think I can say, I hope I can say. Um, this will be probably about a month's time. Oh, okay. All right. So. Grand. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's terrific. It's the best one since Evil Dead 2. I mean, it's, it's not as good as Evil Dead 2, but then again, nothing is. Because, as we discussed, Evil Dead 2 is the greatest movie of all time. But it's terrific. And uh, I, I saw it in very, very weird circumstances. I saw it entirely on my own uh, in a very, very early preview screening. Um, and it still shook me. Uh, so I cannot wait to see, see it with an audience yeah. reacting and screaming in all the right places. It's great. Yeah, yeah I'm really looking forward to it. Um, uh, so... Back to Carpenter. Um, have you ever interviewed him? Oh, yeah, a few times. How was he? Because you always hear the stories about him that if you get him on a bad day, it can be really bad. Uh, that's, not, <laughs> that's not inaccurate. Yeah. Um, not necessarily bad, but you can tell he not, just not, cannot be fucked. <laughs> that is very accurate, I yeah. think. Uh, yeah, I love John Carpenter. I, yeah. I, I, I've interviewed him a, a number of times. Uh, I think most memorably is whenever we reunited him and Kurt Russell for a, a piece about the thing. So it's, it's one of my greatest memories of like, if I, if I were to write down the five greatest things that have happened to me when I've been at empire, uh, flying to LA, going to a, a photographic studio, um, waiting for John Carpenter and then Kurt Russell to turn up. I can't remember who was first. I think John Carpenter was first. And it was just me and the photographer and the photographer's assistant in this massive place. And you have, you've got these incredible photos of, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell with an axe, you know, because yeah. we had one little prop that, you know, was redolent of the thing mm-hmm. and, and doing a photo shoot with them. And there's me dickhead here with my Haddonfield t-shirt and putting John Carpenter tunes on the playlist as he walks in and he's just rolling his eyes. But, you know, that was an amazing interview. I, I think we, we spoke for 90 minutes or something like that. And just the two of them together is just, it's just magic. There's a photograph I have, which I think absolutely sums up their relationship. It also sums up, I think their different approaches to life and their different philosophies, which is there's a, there's a photograph and it's just Kurt Russell mid cackle, <laughs> just, you know, showing so many teeth yeah. and just loving it. And John Carpenter's looking at the camera and kind of going with a world weary sigh, but he loves it. He loves it at the same time. So he's got this very, very dry sense of humor, I think, which doesn't always come across in, in interviews. And I think he's one of those guys who sometimes is, he, he'll, you know, he's, he's okay. He's happy doing interviews. He's happy to talk, but he's also a little bit over it in a yeah. lot of ways. And so sometimes he can actually be uh, hard work. I've had, I've had experiences where, it's, you know, you're trying to get him to, it's like, trying to get him to open up about a movie, but he's like, that was a long time ago, man. I don't really want to talk about that. Let's talk about something else. Yeah. Uh, but when you do get him on, on a, you know, when you do open him up, mm-hmm. he's really fun. Uh, and I've interviewed him about ooh, seven or eight times over the years, cool. I would say. Uh, and I, uh, it's not an interview, but I got to see him as well. Him, him and his band play on Halloween night at the Troxy in London a few years ago now. And that was incredible. That was just absolutely incredible, you know, because they played all the hits, all, all the fame, all the great John Carpenter hits, Yeah, uh, which is another thing that I love about him, that he does his own music for his movies and that the, move, the music is iconic uh, and incredible. 
and you know what you're playing Halloween on Halloween night in London, you know, and he's this old man who's just in just having the time of his life. Yeah. Because he could just he could just raise a finger, put it down the keyboard, and the crowd goes wild. Uh, so yeah, that was amazing. So I've got I've got a quite a yeah, quite a long relationship with him. About ten years ago, ten, fifteen years ago, I guess I interviewed him for the first time. So yeah, going back a bit. It's um, interesting you're saying about that, uh, the gig you went to, he played Glasgow as well, but it was at a time where I hadn't even seen some of like The Fog and They Live and all those, so I knew I, I loved Halloween, and they played The Barrowlands, which uh, I don't know what the talk is like in London, but The Barrowlands is a very small venue, I don't know if you've been to Glasgow or been to The Barrowlands. I've only been to Glasgow once for that, for that uh, weirdly, is it once, once, maybe once or twice. Mm. But uh, the Barrowlands, that's uh, that's associated with Teenage Fan Club, isn't it? They were very much. Uh, I, I, every time I I see them, I know that they're they've been associated with with that that venue. It's probably up the, like there's two venues in Glasgow that are the famous ones. It's the Barrowlands, and then there's King Tuts, which is where Oasis were discovered. Type of thing. Uh, yeah, uh, Alan McGee. Um, but oh the yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the Barrowlands is in the east end of Glasgow, in a place where, to be honest, if you weren't going to a gig, you wouldn't walk through it. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, but it's one of these old style venues. It used to be, it's called the Barrowlands Ballroom because it used to be a ballroom. And now it's been changed into a, a gig venue and it's sweaty. You walk in and your t-shirt straight away gets soaked to your, to your, your kind of stomach. It's one of those just proper, it's great. It's the best venue in the world, I think, anyway. Um, <laughs> but I might be biased. Uh, and he was playing there and I just, I went, I don't really know enough. I think I'm maybe a wee bit, and I, I regret it so much that I didn't go because I can't imagine. John Carpenter on tour is something that happens regularly. Like, um, no, no. So no. I massive, massive regrets for that. John Carpenter's The Fog. This is KAB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here, and let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're one hundred years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. One hundred years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. One hundred years ago, between midnight and one, something unnatural came out of the fog. Now it has returned. ago, between midnight and one, something evil came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Who's there? The fog. Antonio Bay has a curse on it. We're all cursed. There's no water got in here, but something awful cold, Ben. I think I'll go to Vancouver now. Where's the fog now? It should be right outside my door now. Oh, there's something different about this fog. Dan, stay away from the door! Someone listen to me! Get inside and lock your doors. Close your windows. There's something in the fog.
stay away from the fog. From the creator of Halloween, the ultimate experience in terror and suspense. John Carpenter's The Fog, starring Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, John Houseman, Janet Leigh as Kathy Williams, and Hal Holbrook as Father Malone. The Fog. What you can't see won't hurt you. It will kill you. Between midnight and one, it will find you. So we're going to the first one then. Uh, is 1988 The Fog. Classic ghost story, would you say? Yeah, I would say so. Very much so. And uh, I think him trying to do something slightly different after after Halloween, the success of Halloween. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it was the fact that he was attached to the fog and you know in deep on the fog that meant that he didn't do Halloween too to the extent that they wanted him to do Halloween too. Okay. Um, he was already he was already in deep in this one. Um, and it's interesting because obviously Halloween is not a ghost story. Mm. Um. You know, but this is the um, of the of those films of those early films. Dark Star is this weird mordant sci-fi comedy. Um, then you have Assault on Precinct Thirteen, which is this incredible tense police thriller set in the police station. Then you have Halloween, obviously, uh, and then you have have the fog, which is this very very classic campfire tale. I mean, it literally starts with <laughs> it literally starts with John Houseman at the beginning. Telling this this story, uh, you know, setting up the backstory, and it's it's beautiful. But as a film, it's it's all about atmosphere. I think in a way that's even more even more so than than Halloween. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about just that sort of you know establishing that sort of chill at the base of your neck, and that's what this that's what this film is. But it also has, as I said earlier on, leprous zombie sailors and a whole bunch of kills and some really interesting characters. As well, you know, you have uh, Adrian Barbeau uh, as uh, Stevie Wayne, the the, the DJ. Uh, you know, you got this really desperate group of characters who are, who come together on the on this night. Um, it has one of the great endings for me. Yeah. Um, you know, with with Hal Holbrook <laughs> essentially being decapitated at the end of the yeah. film, uh, and the, and the, everything about it—the music, the the look of the fog, the way it glows mm-hmm. inwardly. Um, it's just, it's absolutely one of my favorite carpenters, but this is the, this is the problem with, you know, trying to choose three John Carpenter films. Cause I could have gone for three completely different films. I could have gone for, I could have gone for Assault of Precinct 13. I could have gone for Christine, you know, I could have gone for Halloween and I haven't gone for Halloween. Yeah. Uh, maybe because Halloween's a bit obvious. I haven't gone for anything as mad as, as Jed with crime wave. I haven't, <laughs> I, it's, it's like I'm pitching up here going, oh Yes. One of my favorite John Carpenter films is Ghosts of Mars. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But I am trying to think, shine a light on some of the lesser known ones. Mm, um, you know, certainly we'll, we'll get to that with Prince of Darkness. Mm. But uh, the fog for me is just—it's a director who's at the height of his powers. who just wants to scare the shit out of audiences, mm-hmm. uh, and he does it really, really effectively. Yeah. Ghosts of Mars, the first John Carpenter movie I ever seen. Because really, I think I would have been maybe 13, 14 when that came out. Uh, so it was kind of perfect time for me to see it. At the time, I didn't know it was Carpenter. Um, I just thought it was a, a kind of violent, weird ghost story. I've watched <laughs> it once or maybe twice. I couldn't tell you what happened in it. 
<laughs> I haven't gone back to it. I haven't. I haven't. I haven't yeah. done that at all. Um, I of uh, the ward. I think I've seen once, which is his last film, and I think it is going to be his last film. I, I don't see him directing another movie. Yeah. And um, Dark Star, weirdly enough, I've only seen once. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I think pretty much everything, with the possible exception of Starman, I've seen most of his movies a number of times, including Vampires, which I gave uh, another go recently. And there's some really good stuff in Vampires. It's also some absolutely terrible stuff. Yeah, James Woods, isn't it? James Woods, yeah. yeah. James Woods is, is good value in that movie. Mm. Yeah, he is. Um, we kind of touched a wee bit on, before talking the fog about John Carpenter, obviously he writes his own music and his score. The score in this, I think, as you're saying, is what frightened your mum. It's mm. constant throughout this movie. It never seems to really let up. There's always a low thrum throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Like the bass just playing through or whatever. I just about using a, a very poorly play guitar sometimes. So my kind of musical knowledge is quite limited. Um, <laughs> and it just seems that it's kind of, it never lets up throughout the whole the whole kind of 100 minute runtime, which adds to the, you've always got a sense of dread, something's coming, something's around the corner that is about to hit you. Well, the interesting thing about it is that it keeps going, as you say, even during the scenes that aren't set at night, because one of the things about The Fog is, you know, it's a slow burn of a movie. Yeah. A really slow burn of a movie takes place over a couple of nights, whereas Halloween takes place over one night. But like Halloween, you know, Halloween is, is 70% Michael Myers creeping around in the daytime in yeah. Haddonfield, stalking Jamie Lee Curtis, and then night falls and he ramps up the pace. And it's a little bit like that with the fog. It you know it takes such a long time to get going, but yeah. the music is omnipresent and ominous. And you know it's it's not just all about that low hum of the of the bass. And he was a big synthesizer guy as well, so I'm not sure whether he's actually playing bass or or not. But you know, the bass, even though it's not really present that much in, say, the score for for Halloween, it's certainly you know that sort of you know the 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 the, the lower notes in the register plays a big part of the the music of Assault and Precinct 13. But the bass, in a weird way, becomes part of Carpenter's signature sound, so that whenever he gets Ennio Morricone to do the thing. There are tracks in the thing where it's actually not Ennio Morricone. It's it's Carpenter and Alan Howarth, who is his musical, you know, a co-writer um, colleague who came on uh, after this after this movie, and you know because they they wanted to be a little bit more Carpenter esque. So some of the some of the signature tracks of the thing, like the opening music, the dum dum. Dum dum dum. That's not Neil Marconi. That's Carpenter and Howarth, right. uh, which is really interesting. So that's a big part of the sound of the fog, as well. But there are scenes, like for example, where Adrian Barbeau is walking down that really really long walk down to her lighthouse uh, radio station, where it's just the you know, soundtrack by the the very very ominous high pitched you know piano. Yeah, and it just it's creepy as hell. In fact, one of the creepiest scenes in that movie is is in broad daylight. It's when the uh, the sort of weird ghost slash demon voice comes on the radio when she's when she's got the um uh, she's got the sort of the the what's it called driftwood a piece of driftwood and mm. it suddenly 
suddenly for a second you hear just this weird creepy voice on radio it's so insidious yeah um yeah it's terrific the way he the way he's able to inspire fear and dread in daytime scenes in that movie and halloween is is wonderful yeah yeah it's as you're saying the 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 daytime can be the the most unsettling because it's not what you expect the what I, i really loved about the fog is you're saying that it's the, the it's maybe a bit obvious to say but the, the the look of the fog as you mentioned there's a heaviness to it that feels like not just mm-hmm. if you get caught in that that you're going to get caught with the ghosts but the fog will actually be the thing that catches you yep and it's yeah it's it adds to that atmosphere where you've not just got the worry of the the ghost leopard leopard pirates something yeah. i thought i'd say <laughs> it's like it's like that you know well yeah it's a bit like um you best start believing in ghost stories jb d curtis you're in one it's a, bit, it's a bit like that isn't it uh yeah the fog itself is yeah you're right absolutely it, it hangs heavy it's got a, it's got this weird malevolence to it and it's the fact that it glows and the way it moves um yeah. i remember reading a couple of, I, I can't remember exactly how they did it now but i know that it was an absolute nightmare to to get right uh at the time and i think drove him a little bit potty yeah. Um, it's interesting that he didn't do horror again until the thing that he kind of like he goes right Elvis <laughs> and, and then uh, he, well I think Elvis was actually after this wasn't it um, no Elvis was around the same time and then yeah. he goes Escape from New York and yeah he goes nope not doing that again not <laughs> not going there again uh, until the thing obviously when he decides to make you know one of the greatest horror films of all time mm-hmm. but um, yeah, there's there's so much about the the fog I love. There's so many really really creepy sequences. Uh, there's the sequence where, you know, there's some weird inexplicable supernatural shit that goes on in that film where Jamie Lee Curtis is in the the morgue, and yeah. the corpse suddenly reanimates and grabs a scalpel and starts slowly approaching her, and then just drops to the ground. <laughs> so weird. You just so to weird. Draw a number. Yeah, it's so creepy. There's little things like the um the the the, gumby, the zombie ghost pirates knocking on Tom Atkins' door, yeah. and then just as the as the stroke of midnight, he goes to open it. And because it's the stroke of midnight now, they just disappear. It's it, because it's not it's not playing with the same logic that Michael Myers played by. It allows him to do anything, mm-hmm. uh, and as a result, it's it's so weird and unpredictable and a little bit fucked up. And of course, mm-hmm. it has. Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee in in the same scene, which is yep. great. Several yep. scenes, mm-hmm. and um, the DJ makes an interesting choice, doesn't she? Like her son's alone at home, and she's telling him, "I need to stay and shout about the fog over the radio." I thought that was interesting <laughs> today. The first time I thought about it, and I'd seen it a, a few times now. Um, I've got it on four uh, K, and um, I just thought, I think you maybe could ask someone else to come in and watch the fog or something, or leave your station <laughs> like she's just yeah. like, someone else saved my son i'm just going to watch this fucking yeah, he's, <laughs> he's with an old and expendable babysitter he's going to be totally fine that's very uh, true then you've got a victim haven't you just, yeah you got a victim yeah mm. it kills six people during the, and that's the thing the body count's actually not that big mm. he kills six people kills uh charles seifert gets it doesn't he and then uh yeah there's a, there's a there's a few other expendable minor characters who get get bumped off yeah in pretty pretty gory ways but uh yeah I, I i'm glad that stevie stayed behind because it leads to you know that really terrifying sequence at the end where they're 
breaking into the um the radio station and following up onto the roof and it's yeah it's it's terrific yeah it's excellent um so we did touch on the ending obviously as well and i want to kind of we'll circle back later on once we've discussed the three movies about carpenter's ended Itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! So now on to 1982's The Thing, um, what is now heralded as one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Um, if it's Carpenter's best, that's, again, it's, it's all a matter of opinion. I have seen this numerous times and I absolutely love it, but it was a kind of initially for me at the beginning. I didn't really get it the first time watching it, but I think I watched it too young and I was just not really kind of grasping what was going on. But it's just a it's just a masterpiece, isn't it? It is. It's it's terrific, and uh, it's a real shame that it didn't do well at the time. I think it still stings him to this day. Yeah, I've interviewed him a number of times about the thing, and there's there's a sore spot there still, and it's a little bit like oh yeah, yeah. So people have caught on after the fact, and people now know it's 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 great. But where were you in '82? Where were <laughs> you? It wasn't you know my my. School, my head, my headmaster wasn't, you know, showing kids, and thankfully, because they were primary school kids, but he wasn't showing them a pirate copy of the thing in mm-hmm. 1982. He was showing us ET, the extraterrestrial, and that was the one that everyone was going nuts about. Mm-hmm. Or as you know, meanwhile, in cinemas, the next, you know, next door, because they were released pretty much at the same time, okay. ET and the thing, which is wild. Uh, it's a little bit like Ghostbusters and Gremlins being released on the same day in 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they were they were released around about the same time, and one became the biggest film of all time and a, and a cultural sensation, and the other one wasn't that. Uh, but it's taken its sweet time becoming a cultural sensation, and it has become a cultural sensation. I have behind me, you can't see it here on the on the camera, but I have behind me a, a board game, a, a thing board game, um, and I don't recall there being an ET board game. And no one's pl- no one's rushing to play an ET board game. No. Whereas there's something about the the thing, the simplicity of the thing's premise, but also the execution. And Carpenter's are just a, a master of of execution. Um, 
you know, I talked earlier on about his Rio Bravo influence and, you know, where several of his movies are about, for the most part, guys, but not always, you know, the, the lead in Prince of Darkness, which we'll get onto is, is a woman. Um, and, you know, Assaulting Priestly 13, this movie, um, Prince of Darkness, to an extent that even something like Ghosts of Mars, uh, all end up being siege movies like Rio mm. Bravo. And he, there's just something about he's he's able to find new notes on a very, very well-worn theme. And it's it's fascinating because this movie doesn't feel like a siege movie, but it is a siege movie because it's ultimately a bunch of guys locked in one place trying to keep something out uh, whilst trying to be resourceful. And again, that's that's something that you know, well, you know, whilst trying to use the best of their their intellect and trying to use their resources to get to think, and then obviously fight their way out of the situation. And he was a huge Howard Hawks fan, was Carpenter, and that's a very Hawksian thing, where you have heroes using their 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 nows and using their brains to try and get out of the situation. The same thing happens in Assaulted Priest Thirteen, mm-hmm. uh, but for me. You know, the thing's got so much going on in, in it, you know, so many interesting themes and so many, so much different subtext. But it is for me, it's the best Carpenter Siege movie. Um, and therefore, by extension, one of the best Siege movies of all time. Um, and it's, it's absolutely terrific. It's one of the best monster movies of all time. It's uh, one of the best, you know, men under pressure movies of all time. And it's got one of the darkest endings, one of the best endings of all time. It's it's it ticks so many so many boxes, and it's it's got that element of a kind of paranoid thriller as well about it. It's like mm-hmm. it runs through the whole thing once the the thing starts kind of infiltrating them. Um, <clears throat> one of the big parts of this movie, I think, is the practical effects, which mm-hmm. obviously it's a movie made daily. You're looking at it now, you can see that it's not it's, it's not like a a big budget like Marvel movie or something like that. But it does, there's an element of, it feels lived in, it feels real because of the practical effects. They really add to it. The And it, it gives it, I think charm is maybe been a bit uh, unfair to it, but it's, I mean, the, the practical effects just work fantastically well in it. Well, it just feels real. It feels real. Yeah. Um, the effects are by Rob Botin, who was, he's still alive, but I say was because he retired years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think he retired out of dismay about what he th- saw happening to practical effects. I think he also maybe, had, I can't remember exactly, but I think he had a bad experience on a movie and just decided to walk away. But, you know, a lot of people give plaudits and quite rightly to the likes of Rick Baker. Uh, yeah. He was absolutely incredible. And, you know, also has retired, but you know, he was he was amazing and and rewrote the rule book on on practical makeup effects. But Rob Botine was this kind of weird genius, boy genius who was following in Rick Baker's footsteps. Mm-hmm. You know, so when Rick Baker leaves the howling to go to American Werewolf in London because of an agreement he long standing agreement he had with John Landis, Rob Botine was the guy who came in and you know, and applied his own incredible genius to those mm. effects so you had those two movies coming out at the same time with groundbreaking effects in both of them and it's the same thing here and it's the fact that it was pretty much filmed 
you know, it was pretty much filmed practically. That you know, it there's such. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean by charm. I know what you mean by charm. Yeah. But there's a there's a sort of a truth to the effects that you don't get with right. with CG uh, and the actually fairly decent prequel that came out a few years ago that has the same name confusingly uh, Shorn of the John Carpenter uh, you know possessive credit which I which is another thing I love about Carpenter you know I don't know why more directors don't do that mm. you know John Carpenter's The Thing John yeah. Carpenter's The Fog John Carpenter's Halloween that's so ballsy I, I love that more directors should do that <laughs> if the prequel uses CG the prequel uses yeah. CG and Carpenter doesn't because he couldn't because there wasn't any CG back then but the fact that you know it was done for real. The only time that it feels a bit cheesy is the stop motion a bit at the end with the big monster. Yeah. Um, you know, oh yeah, fuck you too, and all that sort of stuff. And it does look a little bit ropey mm. at the end. But everything else, there are effects in this movie that still to this day hold up, and there are nightmarish visions that to this day still hold up. Uh, but the, I would argue the best special effect of all in the thing. Uh, apart from the music, which is incredible, is Kurt Russell's beard. A very handsome man, isn't he? Very, very handsome man. But you know, he's, well, he's so gruff in that movie. It's it's brilliant. I know a lot of people stand for Snake Plissken, but for me, it's R.J. McGrady all the way. If you're yeah. if you're talking about great Kurt Russell and you know obviously Jack Burton, but great um, Carpenter uh, Russell heroes, it's 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 Mac for me. He's just pretty much eyes and forehead because everything else is just hair. <laughs> He's like, is it uh, cousin up for the Adams family? Yeah, he is. He's fantastic in this. His voice is still obviously from growing up. I've known the Kurt Russell, who's a little bit older. His voice is still so recognisable in this. He's just yeah. fantastic. He's in this. Has got a great cast. You got Wilford Brimley and Wilford Wilford Brimley, um, Keith David as well, and it's just got us kind of. Maybe not stacked cast, but a very good cast. And he just stands out. Obviously, he's the lead he's going to, but you can you really attach to him. And there's, obviously, you talked about the ending, very bleak ending, where there's two of them left. And you've got uh, Keith Davis, Childs, and McCready, essentially waiting to die. Um, but there's just a magnetism throughout the whole thing. And You've got hope for after the credits that maybe everything's not lost for McCready because of Kurt Russell, because of how engaging he is. Like, but I mean, he's fucked. But you hope he's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think I think he's fucked. I think they're both yeah. fucked. Uh, there's okay. there's a lot of discussion, obviously, about you know, is one of the thing is one of them a yeah. thing at the end of that movie, or are they both things, uh, or are they both okay? What's what's your take? What's your theory? I think they're both okay, personally. I don't, yeah, but maybe I'm just an optimist. Um, I love that. That's the most optimistic reading of the the end of the thing. Because I, the way I would read it, I don't know. Maybe again, I'm being wrong. I know the things just kind of plan has changed to we think now just to freeze. But I think if either of them was, they would just attack the other one. They wouldn't wait. I don't know. I'm, I'm doubting myself now. 
No, I think it's interesting. There's the you yeah. know there's lots of discussion over the years, and people have gone, "Oh, Childs doesn't he, you can't see his breath on the air, or oh, that means he's the thing." No, it doesn't. That the yeah. thing has replicated humans down to the last possible degree. So mm. I don't think they you know that would be a, a telltale sign that you're not the thing. Um, otherwise, that's a more telltale sign than, the, than a blood test, I guess. Yeah, I, I read. A, I read. A, I think it was was it Eric Fesby, who's obviously an amazing film writer and you know the co-host of the the king cast pod uh and he he did a thread on twitter a few months ago where he went you know i've watched the thing countless times countless 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 times and here's my new theory that mccready is a thing at the end of the movie and that he's a thing very early on and that he's like faking the blood test or or that he's you know he engineers the blood test so that you know, whenever that that famous blood test sequence where 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 Palmer suddenly gets revealed as a as a as a thing and all hell breaks loose, uh, you know, and he his his theory is like McCready's a thing at that point and is somehow trying to out the other thing to get the attention taken away from him so he can go and you know he can so he's the one who can go and um turn yeah. Blair because we never see when Blair turns. Yeah, uh, and there's so much that happens off screen in this movie. There's so much, so much weird shit that happens when we're not told <laughs> about it. And now I have to say that you know, I love, I love Eric Vespi. I think he's brilliant, but I think he's wildly off beam with that. <laughs> uh, I think I may have told him that on Twitter or not, or, or not. But uh, for me, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't think, obviously, dramatically, it would be satisfying if one of them was a thing, mm. but. I'm glad that we never found out. I know there were lots of different treatments knocking around for sequels for years and years and years. And I think Frank Darabont of, of all people got really close to getting one off the ground, I think as a mini series okay. and that would have revealed that child's was a thing and they right. get picked up very, very quickly by a rescue team. And, and then child's is revealed as a thing. And then they go to another base and all shit, all sort you know, all hell starts breaking loose again. And McCready's yeah. trying desperately to stop it. Um, but I'm glad that we don't get that. Instead, we get you know one of the great endings. You know the the two of them just chilling, literally in in the snow. Uh, you know, and that great line. Why don't we sit here for a little while, and see what happens? You know, it's just which I probably got wrong, but it feels like I got it right. So good, yeah. proximity has the same dream what is it a secret that can no longer be kept it started a month ago what started a change in the earth and the sky is power there's a weird locking mechanism looks like it can only be opened from the inside a life form is growing out of prebiotic fluid. It's not winding down into disorder. It's self-organizing. It's becoming something. What? Stop! 
so for this next part uh, unfortunately i had some audio issues uh it's the app that i was recording with seems to have just chopped off my audio for this part um kept chris's in so that's the main the main thing um what we're discussing at this point is prince of darkness and there's also kind of a couple of mentions of things like weird zombie alice cooper parts like that um so apologies for that and here it is talking prince of darkness i don't need to see a second movie with a zombie homeless alice cooper quite frankly although you could argue that there should be a zombie homeless alice cooper in every single movie but they should just have one you know it doesn't matter what the film is millions to stick a zombie homeless alice cooper in there and liven things up um but yeah, I love this movie, and I know that it's, I know that it it's uh, one of the weirder entries in uh, Carpenter's filmography. Although I would argue that in the Mouth of Madness is weirder, <laughs> and uh, but I, I've loved this movie from the moment I first saw it, and uh, over the years I've appreciated it more and more and more. And I think it's a little bit of a slow burn. It's it's got a uh, there's a very 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 small minority of horror fans who will really, really go to bat for this movie. And I am absolutely one of them. Uh, it's also, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's so atmospheric and it's such an interesting blend of hard science, like properly hard science. Like he was, he was very influenced Carpenter by Nigel Neal, who, uh, you know, K N E A L E for people who who are, are want to Google it. Uh, Nigel Neal, who uh, wrote the Quatermass, uh, Quatermass films back in the fifties uh, and sixties, and uh, is a very very famous um, writer of twisted horror tales, and um, was a big influence as well on on Halloween three. In fact, wrote the screenplay for Halloween three initially um until there was you know a fair amount of shenanigans but you you can tell there's an influence on on this movie because carpenter wrote the screenplay for this movie uh, but decided to change his name he took the the he took the credit martin quatermass instead of john carpenter for this it's something he's done before so he takes the credit john t chance on uh, assault and priest 13 um, I think I think it's editor. I think he's I think he's it says edited by by John T. Chance. Might be wrong about that. Uh, John T. Chance is the name of John Wayne's character in Rio Bravo. So you know, so there's a there's a long history of going back of of Carpenter kind of tipping the the hat to what to what inspired him. So Martin Quatermass wrote Prince of Darkness, which if you, if people haven't seen it, because I I think most people know what the fog is about. Most people know what the thing's about. Most people listening to this will have seen The Fog and they'll have seen The Thing. Say there's a fair amount of people who won't have seen or even heard of Prince of Darkness. So Prince of Darkness, just to try and recap it real quick, uh, is this utterly bizarre horror film in which Donald Pleasance, the great Donald Pleasance, plays a priest, who, a Catholic priest, who is basically contacted by a very secret sect who run who own a church in downtown los angeles and they have been going for hundreds of years and they've been holding a secret and the last of their number has passed and the and so they entrust donald pleasance with a secret and the secret basically is that they have satan locked up in a basement um <laughs> to, essentially but the, the the real trick here is that satan 
actually it isn't really Satan. It's the son of Satan, but that's a, that's another, that's another development that, that comes to light during the film. And the real development here is the Satan in this movie isn't a physical force. Not really. It's a green revolving liquid in a jar um, that infects people with pure evil and with chaos. And Donald Pleasance brings in a group of theoretical science students who are led by the great uh, Victor Wong, who, of course, along with Dennis Dunn, who's also in this film, starred also in Big Trouble in Little China, pretty much, which was made back to back pretty much with this movie. Um, you know, one of the things I love about Carpenter is this kind of repertory company of actors that he has popping up throughout all his movies, you know, Carpenter, you know, Kurt Russell, Donald Pleasance in this movie, um, Victor Wong and, and Dennis Dunn in this film as well. Um, and they begin to investigate this because they don't know what it is. And then it be- comes to light that there's, you know, basically bad shit starts to happen. The satanic force gets loose and all hell literally breaks loose. And it's so bizarre, this movie. I can't even begin to tell you how bizarre it is. Uh, but it is also, you know, mixed in with lots of jump scares and lots of, you know, another siege type situation as the the church begins to be surrounded by homeless people who it's not it's problematic uh but (laughs) who have somehow tuned into the satanic influence that's being emitted by this this weird file a file of file i guess uh and there's all this stuff that's going on but there's also this kind of hard science edge to it all where they are theoretical scientists and they're trying to apply scientific principles to this jar of evil and they're applying actual quantum physics to it and quantum physics theories to it and it's such a weird movie and it has for me one of the most haunting images in all of horror cinema which is a recurring dream that uh, is that runs throughout the movie that every character begins to have the same dream um, which is of a dark hooded figure emerging from the church. And uh, it turns out it's not a dream. It's actually a vision of a possible future um, beamed back. This is the quantum physics uh, part beamed back through time by people who are experiencing the events, um, the apocalyptic events that happen if they don't, sort this out if they don't sort this shit out right now then they basically the prince of darkness itself will emerge and wreak havoc upon the earth it's very lovecraftian uh carpenter sees this as the second part of his apocalypse trilogy um with the thing and with in the mouth of madness as well and you could absolutely see that and it's it's so creepy the way that this this recurring vision unfolds throughout the throughout the movie i've talked far too long about this movie but uh and you have a go because you know uh i love this movie unreservedly i i rushed to the cinema to see it on the big screen when it was re-released in a remastered edition a few years ago i dragged my wife with me who hates horror films and that didn't convert her uh but what about what about you you know as someone who was you know a first timer um did you were you were you did you succumb to the the pleasures of the green juice I um so it wasn't a first time watch for me, but it is the first time I've seen it in a while. Um it's still very surreal. It's it's just a it's a hard movie to grasp because as you said, there's all these the talk of 
like Satan, but Satan is in the vial. It's his dad that they're trying to bring through. There's talk of Jesus being an extraterrestrial. Yes. Um, just casually mentioned at one point. Um, it is, yeah, I mean, I do enjoy it. It's probably my least favourite out of the three, I think. Um, but I just, I like the, the kind of swings he takes where it is just so weird and batshit. And again, has the kind of carpenter ending of really ominous and dark and ambiguous and open-ended. But yeah, I would definitely, I definitely really enjoy it. It's just my least favorite out of the three. That's that's totally fair. That's that's, that's totally fair. I say as most people's uh, least favorite, but I think it has become, it has become considered to be masterpiece. Is perhaps the wrong, the wrong phrase. I may be gilding the lily somewhat, but yeah, for me, it is absolutely up there with the with the the best of Carpenter. Uh, in so many ways, it is it is an utterly batshit insane film, and I love as you say, the, the swings that it takes and it manages to be several different things at once, you know, so it's, it, it turns into an action movie at various points you have, because it has so many different characters. So it's a, it's, it's a bit like the thing and a bit like the fog um, in that it's an ensemble movie. Uh, but you have so many characters, which means that he can do lots of fairly interesting, gory kills, but it also means that, you know, characters could be taken over. They could be possessed. There is a, there's a sort of demonic possession thread that runs through the film, which is, mm-hmm. I think, a more interesting take on demonic possession than you would see in most movies. Yeah. Um, there's some really, really creepy shit in, in the film, not just Alice Cooper killing people with, <laughs> a, with a bike, uh, but there's, there's like a bit where one of the characters gets killed outside the church and then is reanimated as a corpse that is pretty much composed of beetles and cockroaches and horrible things and he makes some sort of he makes a pronouncement to the various um the assembled survivors and which is basically pray for death and it's so creepy and there's so much nightmare fuel in this movie that has stayed with me for a long long time and you know um but it takes so many wild swings that if you don't like something don't worry something else is going to come along in a second that's going to be batshit insane um yeah it's so good and uh, one of Donald Pleasance's last great performances as well for me as the as the priest. But he's yeah. not the lead of the film. No. Uh, the lead of the film is, is Lisa Blount, who yeah. is terrific. Um, sadly died a few years later. Uh, also won an Oscar for Best Live Action Short, I believe. Um, but yeah, she sadly died a few years later. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, uh, uh, she's fantastic. Uh, Catherine, um, she plays. Mm. And it, it's the point at the end where she kind of makes a sacrifice to stop the Prince of Darkness coming through the mirrors. There's no, the, the whole thing with the mirrors in it as well, where the mirrors mm-hmm. the dimension. Um, and straight away, Donald Pleasant just breaks the glass. <laughs> like, fuck it. fuck around. No, no, no I'm not taking it. The next shot is her trying to reach up for, for someone to save her. And he just went, fucking no chance, bang. Fucking <laughs> 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 glass is gone. Her feet are just through the other side and he's just launching an axe at it. No, he does not fuck around, as you're saying. He doesn't fuck around. Yeah, it's it's got a really good ending. Uh, it's it's a bit more of a conventional fake out ending than I think you get in the in the fog, which is the balls on the ending of the fog is are, are incredible. Um, yeah. And I, of course, we we've talked about the ending of the thing. And Carpenter was was really really good at endings. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the ending of this is is a bit more conventional fake out. You literally get a fake out jump scare where the remaining hero um 
Brian um looks, you know, he he he's woken up his his great love has been lost into the, in this dark dimension, locked up in a dark dimension with what might be Satan itself. Yeah. And he has a dream and he looks across and then there's a, a evil, scary zombie type, you know, but it's a, it's a fake out. And then the last shot of the movie is him touching a mirror and you get a sense, Oh, is there something? Is she going to come through the mirror? Is, you know, is this the way, is this her way into the world? Is the apocalyptic vision that we've seen through the movie? Is it actually going to come true after all? And they haven't averted it, but I actually think it's actually more, I think it's it's probably the more optimistic ending than the thing. Uh, again, it's one of those things you can you can you can read it in many many different ways. But I read it as the uh, the threat has been vanquished at least temporarily. Um, that's how I read the ending of, of that movie. But there's there's so much great stuff. There's a scene where you know one of the 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 scientists is possessed and she's typing furiously. Someone comes in and looks, you know, it's like, well, hey, you okay? What's happening? And she's typing so fast that she's not even looking at the screen because she's possessed. She's like, you will not be saved. In fact, you will not be saved at all. And and then, you know, all hell breaks loose. And it, it's just, it's so, it's so weird. There's bits where the, 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 uh, the evil starts to possess people. And then one of the, one of the people that it possesses basically gets chosen as the mother of the mother of Satan, essentially. Yeah. And so she starts getting pregnant really, really quickly. And then she starts going into this kind of fever dream. And there's a moment where the, the, all the possessed zombie type people just kind of take a break and just stop trying to kill all the rest of the characters. And they just stand around in this catatonic trance for ages. Yeah. And Dennis Dunn is trapped in a room and he's trying to break out, trying to, you know, trying to, you know, break down a wall so he can escape. And he's he he's allowed to do so because all the zombies are just kind of stand around, just waiting for something to happen. Yeah. It's such an interesting uh, the pace of the movie. It's so bizarre. I love it so much. It's uh, it feels to me like it was a uh, you know one of those last fuck it swings from a from a director who had um, you know had maybe not the greatest of experiences in the in the eighties post post the thing the failure of the thing you know he went he went pretty much straight into the christine which i love and again came very very close to to talking about here and has one of the all-time best carpenter sequences when the when the car the 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 devil car begins to repair itself in front of uh, keith gordon mm. the show me sequence in that movie it's just it's yeah. just blinding but uh you know starman was fine wasn't great you know but i know he had a bad time on Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which is one of the few movies he doesn't take the John Carpenter's credit on, um, you know. And I think I think in this movie, there's a kind of there's a fuck it energy to it. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell this weird twisted tale on my terms, yeah. and for me, it really really works. I reckon I know we spoke about the ending of the thing there, and the ending this one. You see, it's more hopeful. I read it the other way. I read it as. Okay. The reason being is because the figure in the church seems to be different from the one we've seen throughout. So obviously the, the dream that uh, uh, Brian has at the end is of Catherine specifically coming out of the church yes. with her arms spread. But in the earlier dreams, it seems to be as if that cloaked hooded figure or it seems to be a bit more hulking and big. So I think it's almost like another reality 
there's no messaging him back. I don't know. Again, that's a that's a good yeah, that's a good point. That's a very very good point. Of course, you could argue as well that we we don't just get to see the end of that vision because everyone wakes up before it happens, and this is the first time at the end of the movie, you know, where you get to you get to see it uh, absolutely you know reach its its end point, and then you get to see that it's her. But that's a very very good point that it may not be her in the original vision, and that what they have done, what Donald Pleasance has actually done, is is destroy humanity. And that she's going to come through, and clearly she's possessed by by something, and that's that's not going to be easy to to get rid of. That's a very very good point. Um, maybe I'm just being too optimistic. <laughs> I need a harsh dose of uh, carpenter pessimism uh, to finish me off. But it's so good. I mean that uh, I, I listen regularly to the soundtrack by for that, which is by Carpenter and Alan Har- Haworth, and uh, that is on the soundtrack. The uh, the the message from the future. Which right. is what it, I think that's the track title actually on the soundtrack, and you have this. The you know it's, it, it feels like it, it. It does feel like a radio signal that's trying to burst through static, yeah. um, and it's got this haunting refrain that goes all the way through. It's like this is not a dream. This is not a dream. This is a message from you know we are broadcasting this from the year one nine nine nine. The the offense of what you're saying is so it's so good and it's so there's a there's a weird detached almost inhuman malevolence to the message alone which mm. just you know puts my gets your goosebumps out yeah and as it's, as you're saying it's definitely probably i think it would be the most underseen like people know of the fog they know of they definitely know of the thing um and along with that and i think mouth of madness as well are two that are kind of maybe underappreciated more so than a lot of Carpenter stuff. I love Mouth of Madness. I think it's brilliant. But it's Sam Neill. I mean, mm. like, I think he just adds so much to it as well. Um, but that's that's another another conversation. Um, <laughs> so but with the three of these, it seems that the three of them weren't particularly well received. Obviously, we've touched on the thing. Um, is it maybe, is it almost him... I read somewhere about the thing, maybe with, and you touched on it as well, with E.T. being out at the same time. Maybe people wanted the more upbeat certainly optimistic and hopeful alien movie than yeah the kind of bleak uh, outlook of the thing and then but with the fog and prince of darkness as well it does seem like he's just at his time he was really underappreciated as a filmmaker overall yeah i think so i think so i i think probably with the exception of halloween which was a massive 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 hit and gave him the power to basically do whatever he wanted to do for the next couple of years, which means you know he can make Escape from New York and he can make, you know, he can make the fog. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how well known the name John Carpenter is. I know that seems really really strange because you know pretty much every film fan knows who John Carpenter is, but I don't know that your average cinema goer would necessarily. No, John Carpenter. I think perhaps the you know the fact that his name is in the title of the movies really really helps. Yeah, um, you know it gives him a bit of notoriety, a bit of name recognition that most other horror directors don't have. But I don't think he was ever really the flavor of the multiplex. Mm. You know, uh, which is a real real shame, um, because I think he's for me he's he's certainly one of the best directors, uh, you know, uh, of modern American cinema. He's one of the best horror directors of all time. Yeah, you know, we haven't really talked about how great he is visually. 
you know, and you know, working a lot with with Dean Cundy, the great cinematographer. You know, you know some of the widescreen compositions and the, and the the way the camera creeps around in the fog and in and in the thing. Less so in Prince of Darkness, but I think there's there's a kind of there's a there's a uh, just a feeling of doom that's that's sewn into the fabric of that movie anyway. But yeah. he is he is a classicist in terms of how he approaches films visually. You know, his soundtracks are iconic. Um, you know, I think he is he's definitely for me undervalued and underappreciated. Um, you know, I think he made some stinkers. Let's <laughs> not beat around the bush, but most directors have. Yep. But you know, I've I've talked about three movies here tonight. But honestly, I think he made seven or eight Stone Cold classics, like all time greats. And that is an astonishing run. I think Halloween is obviously an all-time great. Assaulted PC-13 is an all-time great. Escape from New York is an all-time great. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China, I think a lot of people have a lot of love for. I am less in love with that movie than most, but again, there'll be a lot of people who think it's an all-time great. Christine is an all-time great for me. So I think easily you're at seven or eight. You know, seven or eight. Uh, And then, you know, obviously goes without saying that Memoirs of an Invisible Man is, is his best movie. You know, he's just, he is just, he's up there. He's, uh, you know, we discussed this on the Empire podcast a while ago, who would be on our movie Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And Carpenter is is absolutely on on my Mount Rushmore for me. Yeah, he has, he has, he has one of the, the greats, as we've said. He maybe doesn't get the reverence that he deserves, but I think people nowadays are certainly more appreciative of his, yeah. of his stuff. Um, so... Thanks very much for joining me tonight. I've uh, kept you for a, a good length of time. Um, one last thing before we go, but is there anything, where can people find you, find your writing, find the podcast, etc.? Uh, they can find me, well, I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. Um, I still have a blue tick, Elon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've somehow crept under the radar. I refuse to play for Twitter, Twitter Blue. Uh, yeah. Not doing that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. I'm at CTAH1976, which is very catchy, but there you go, on Instagram. Um, you can find me every week on the Empire Podcast. Uh, new episodes are out every Friday, and we do loads of specials as well. And the spoiler specials go up. Um, there's at least there's at least a few. There's a few every month. Mm, uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll respond to the big films and sometimes, you know, big kind of geek centric TV shows as well. So we're doing weekly Mandalorian spoiler specials, for example, that is two ninety nine a month. Uh, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, so that's where you can find me. And of course you can find me in the pages of Empire Magazine every single month as well on sale now, all good evil and virtual news agents. Perfect. And yeah, definitely I would recommend anyone to sign up to the spoiler special pods. As we said, it's, Chris was saying two ninety nine, and for the amount of content you guys put out, it's totally worth it. And it's just great hearing that level of kind of insight into uh, all the new releases. It's not something there's a huge amount of anyway. Um, that level of depth and kind of discussion and audience interaction as well, like listener questions and all that, mm. all that stuff. Um, thank you. So, as I've said, thank you very much for joining me. The last thing I usually ask a guest to do. Um, 
is if they could pick a piece of music or a score or a song. doesn't necessarily have to be from the movies we've discussed tonight, um, just as long as it's from a movie. Um, <laughs> what one for us? I mean, yes, John Carpenter. So I've got to, I've got to go with, <laughs> I've got to go with a John Carpenter score. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, he so he released a few years ago with his band, which which features his son, uh, Cody Carpenter. Uh, so they released, they reworked some of his great movie themes. It's called Anthology, John Carpenter Anthology. Uh, movie themes, nineteen seventy four to nineteen ninety eight. So uh, it's got thirteen tracks in there. And the track this is weird. It starts with it starts with "In the Mouth of Madness" and it finishes with "Christine." Um, and he, but he wasn't one for needle drops, John Carpenter. Mm. You know, yeah. he wasn't John Landis. It's not like, you know, American Werewolf in London, which has seven great moon-based songs in it. Yeah. So he he provided the needle drops himself by by so by being so damn talented as a musician as well. Although he'll he'll you know. He'll say he's just a rudimentary player, but yeah, come on, John, come on. Um, the thing is great, as I've talked about. It, I love the, the just that ominous dum dum of the uh, of the bass, uh, which is tremendous. Of the of the films we're talking about tonight, Prince of Darkness has got a really really interesting, striking uh, theme as well. I'm going to go with the fog. Okay, if we can go for the with the fog from that, I nearly went left field and went for Assault of Priestly Thirteen. Because uh, I love that that track so much, I also love Escape from New York. There's a moment in the reworked Escape from New York where the drums kick in and it it's totally bitching, um, <laughs> which is the least cool phrase I've ever said in my entire life. But there you go. Uh, and Snake Plissken would kill me stone dead for saying that, but it's an amazing piece of music. But of the films you talked about tonight, The Fog, gotta go for the fog. <laughs> 